0: You know, there are two contexts that make it very difficult to preach. One is if the worship time is terrible. We've all been in meetings like that. And as the preacher in those moments, your heart sinks and you think, oh Lord, please give us a resurrection from the dead miracle right now because I don't know how to resurrect this meeting. The second is when God sweeps in so powerfully that your mascara runs in tears. And you're overwhelmed by the presence of God. God is in this room. I don't know if you've noticed. He's in this room. And his intention is to overwhelm in order to bring transformation and fullness of life. His desire is to get us in the best possible way. And one of the convictions I have whenever I preach is that I'm not made as a preacher to bring information. No preacher is designed to bring information. I am made to bring revelation that leads to encounter. And so for that Holy Spirit, you are the only one who can bring transformation. And so I ask you to turn up the temperature of your presence in this room, even as I speak. I ask you to breathe on mere words so that they become (laughs) spiritual grenades of transformation. I ask you, Spirit of the living God, come and overwhelm us and breathe life afresh. I pray the fire of God would be felt in this building and that not a single one of us would be able to walk out of here the way we walked in, but there would be a recognition God was in the room and my life has been turned upside down. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. I wanna thank the team. Tyler, thank you so much for having me, team, for welcoming me here. It feels like I'm with family, which is just the best context to speak in just to give you a little bit of information about me in case um, I've not met you yet. Um, Yes, my name is Katia. I am married to an incredible man called Julian who has uh, one of the sharpest prophetic gifts that I've ever seen. So in some ways, I wish he was right here next to me, Uh, but he is at home uh, taking care of our six-year-old son and four-year-old daughter. And I'm so grateful to him for that so that I get to be with you guys today. Um, I have the privilege of leading an amazing church in Boston called The Table. So come and visit us if you're ever in Boston. God is doing amazing things in New England, and I'm privileged to be part of it with so many other men and women of God. I want to tell you a little bit of my story, but before I get there, I want to tell you about something that really convicted me in the last couple of weeks. I was on social media, which of course today is a great context of Holy Spirit conviction, and... um, You laugh because you know it's true. And anyway, I was looking at this funny clip and this woman was yelling at her children, why do we always yell in this house? (laughs) And then she stopped and went, oh yeah, because I'm the mother. And um, I suddenly had a, I'm a Middle Eastern woman, had a sudden moment of, oh yeah, that's why it's so loud in our house, because I'm passionate and Middle Eastern, gifts from the Lord for sure. But there are moments where I think about my kids, why can't we be quieter? And then I think I have no one to blame but myself. And that's because every parent will tell you that proximity and behaviour of the parent breeds an echoing behaviour in their children. The culture of the home dictates in many ways the behaviour that those children will follow. If you want to know if a parent struggles with road rage, (laughs) 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 well, the parents are like, oh, Jesus, you're cutting me deep in the heart. Yeah, watch their kids in the car. Because children, because of proximity, echo the behaviour of the parent. We're going to come back to that in a second. I'm a third generation preacher, and I was born in Iran, and if you know anything about the Middle East, you'll know that that's actually an incredibly unusual story. And I wanna tell you a little bit of my story in order to create context and what I hope will be faith for this message because when I talk about the prophetic, I am not describing something that I believe theoretically. I'm trying to lead you on a journey that God has given me so many experiences in and I believe He wants to give us, as His church, many experiences in. Just to say right at the beginning, the prophetic is not for the special few, but is for any who call themselves children of the living God, but we'll get there in a second too. So I was born in Iran. And I was born in a revival family. My, the fun part of my story really starts with my grandfather. When he was in his 20s, he was given a New Testament by an American missionary in Iran. And at that point in Iran, there really were, if there were Christians in Iran, it would number in the hundreds. There really weren't Christian communities to speak of, but he was given this New Testament and he started reading it and a hunger was ignited in him and he encountered God in the pages of the New Testament, which is God's intention, by the way, in giving us his word, is not that we would learn more, but that we would see more of who he is. And he encountered God in the pages of the Scriptures, and his life was turned upside down. And he looked around for a community to join. Like I say, there wasn't really much expression of Christianity in Iran at that point, but he continued reading his Bible and he figured out, hey, it seems to be that the Holy Spirit is is a pretty big deal in the New Testament. Uh, he had no coaching or mentoring, so he was just learning as he read. And so he decided what he'd do is that he'd follow the disciples model, that he would fast and pray until he was baptized in the spirit. He fasted for 42 days and absolutely nothing happened. I think God was trying to teach him that God isn't interested just in formulas, but is interested in keeping us in connection relationally. But anyway, after he quit his fast, fasting is a good thing, by the way, but anyway, he quit his fast. A few days later, he was cycling back from work on the road and Holy Spirit encountered him with such power that he was knocked off his bicycle, filled with the Spirit, started speaking in tongues. This stuff isn't theory or stuff that died with the apostles. This stuff is real life experience for the people of God today. And he started speaking in tongues. He'd never been coached in this. This wasn't learned behaviour. He hadn't seen it happen in a conference somewhere and so made it up as he went along. But the Spirit of God hit him with power. He went home. He described to my grandmother what had happened. They had six kids at the time. My dad was six. He told them all what had happened. And the next morning, Holy Spirit fell on their house. They were all in different parts of the house getting ready for the day. This wasn't a home conference moment. This was a brushing teeth moment and Holy Spirit encountered them nevertheless because God is not confined to the four walls of a building, but he is wanting to encounter us and engage with us in every second of our lives. And all of them were filled with the Spirit and started speaking in tongues. And From that day, they started nightly meetings in their house for the next three years and hundreds of people came in and they all learned together from the words of the New Testament and they encountered Jesus together and they saw healings together and they heard from the heart of God together and they saw Jesus amongst them physically together and they heard angels singing together. It sounds like the book of Acts, doesn't it? Except it happened to my grandfather, to my dad in their house, and that was the birth of the church in Iran. And today, the underground church in Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. And I wanna say something to you. There is no city that is too dark for the gospel. There is no people group that is too hard. Sometimes people say to me, oh, you're from Iran. That must have been really hard. Oh, they're not interested in Christianity there. That is a lie because Jesus said that the harvest is plentiful. And when he said that, he wasn't lying and he wasn't saying except for the city of Portland, or except for the nation of Iran or except where there are people of other religions. No, he was saying the harvest is plentiful and he meant it. And I want to do, if, if nothing else this morning, I want to ignite fresh faith in you for your city. I want to ignite fresh faith in you for what God can do with one person, one family, one group who is hungry and is saying, Spirit of God, come. We might not even know what that looks like, and I guarantee you we don't know what that looks like. If we predetermine what that looks like, we'll miss it entirely. But when we say, come, Holy Spirit, you define it. God wants to encounter our cities afresh. He wants to bring his kingdom There is no place that's too dark for the gospel. And so I grew up in this kind of environment. When I was five, my family moved from Iran to the UK because the Lord spoke to my parents about starting a church planting movement amongst Iranian refugees all over the world. So we moved to the UK and I was consistently in this environment of believing God for nations and believing that God wanted to do crazy things everywhere. And I loved Pete's story yesterday. There was so much resonance in me of what was normal for me growing up. What the expectation was. Impossible was a word that was just funny because we know God and that should be the case for us as children of God, that impossible becomes an invitation rather than a boundary line. Impossible becomes something that we get to enter into because you and I were made to play in the impossible because the impossible is his realm. He owns it and he invites you and I in. And as I grew up, I learned very quickly that the prophetic is a powerful tool to be used by the people of God in order to build our lives, in order to know what decisions to make. And I made some really crazy decisions based on the prophetic. I made the crazy decision despite the fact that the Lord has spoken to me when I was a young girl about being in full-time vocational ministry in church work. I made the decision when I was a teenager and I felt the Lord say to me, you need to earn credibility on a secular platform, do not go straight into church work. I made the decision to go and study medicine simply because of that prophetic word, to earn credibility on a secular platform. So I studied medicine and I practiced medicine and I worked in an emergency room in England, and then I heard the Lord say to me, it's time to step into what you were made for, position yourself for your purpose. And in that moment, I had to make the decision to believe the prophetic, because how many of you know that the prophetic isn't something that we just talk about, the prophetic is something that we're meant to do something about. And so I made the decision, oh, it was difficult at that point. I was making great money. It's so funny how when you have doctor in front of your name, so much of your identity can start getting wrapped up in the affirmation of those little letters in front of your name. And yet I had to believe that if God had spoken, he knows me better than I know myself. So in that moment, I quit medicine and I started working full time for a church. And every juncture of my story is one where the Lord has spoken And then there's been this moment of, do I believe him enough to follow? The Lord spoke to my husband Julian and I to move from the UK to South Africa and so we moved to South Africa and we lived there for four years and we were part of helping build church there and it was so much fun and so wild and then early in our journey in South Africa, he started speaking, okay, the next step is gonna be the United States. How many of you know that moving countries, especially when you start having kids, isn't the easiest thing to do? certainly doesn't make sense financially. (laughs) But what do you do when you believe that God speaks? Because you can't believe it in theory. If we really believe it, we've got to do something with it. And so we moved, once God had spoken so clearly that we used to laugh and say, we'd either be deaf or disobedient to ignore now, we moved to Boston. The Lord spoke about starting a community there. If we hear him, we have the choice to obey him. Oh, and if we obey him, that's where the adventure starts. And so today, I wanna speak to you about the prophetic in the local church. That was all by way of introduction. We're gonna get to the Bible now. I'm gonna speak to you about the prophetic in the local church, and I wanna say this. My message today is incredibly simple. It will be summarized in four words. And I'm not worried about that, because God loves to breathe on a handful of fish and a handful of bread and make it something miraculous. And I just want to say this because I felt this burden in my heart about this. Sometimes as Christians, we feel so much pressure to create the feast in our own strength. And we're waiting to be able to do that in order to step out. And he's saying, give me your little fish and your bread and let me make the feast. If you're waiting to have all the things together in order to create the feast in your own strength, you'll be waiting a long time. He wants to multiply what we have in our hands. And the thing about simplicity is that it is deceptive. Sometimes, we live in a world that often honors complexity over simplicity. Someone who speaks complicated knowledge, oh, they must be someone to really listen to. But I think we're getting into a season, and even as the church where we're following after the person who sounds like they've got all the information and the more complicated, the more we feel like we need to follow after that. And I need to read 10 more books in order to be someone who can actually speak on this thing. And I think we do that sometimes because simplicity requires obedience, complexity buys us time. Okay, let's get into 1 Corinthians 12. Some of you are like, I did not come here for this. (laughs) We're going to read from 1 Corinthians 12. I'm actually going to read from three chapters, but I'll try to jump through so that I don't take up all of my time with the reading. But this is going to create all the context for us. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is writing to the church and he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray astray to mute idols however you were led. Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves to reveal to us Jesus. In our pursuit of the spiritual gifts, we can be really peaceful because Holy Spirit leads us to know Jesus more. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, not for my ego, not for my platform, not for my sense of uh, unique abilities, not so I can put myself on a pedestal or wish like I was someone else. No, each gift is given for the common and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Then he starts speaking about how we're one body, all with different roles but one body. And then we'll skip to chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, this is a teaching in the context of gifts. This is not a teaching primarily in the context of marriage. (laughs) We use it a lot at weddings and you can and it's a great chapter. But we need to understand that 1 Corinthians 13 is core foundation to the teaching on the use of gifts in the community. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. Sometimes in the church we're told that prophecies have already passed away. The time of the gifts has already passed away. That's interesting to me because the Bible actually does give us a deadline for the gifts. It's here, let's let's hear it. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. These will cease when all things are swallowed up in perfection in him. This will cease in eternity. You won't need prophecy in eternity. When Jesus comes for his bride, (laughs) We enter into a different age with him. If you want the deadline, it's written here. We don't need to invent one for ourselves because of our lack of faith. (laughs) I apologize. I apologize. (laughs) When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. We're gonna land here in a second, pursue love. Two words that we often quickly pass by as we go into earnestly desire spiritual gifts, we do that at our own peril. The pursue love we have to stand in, marinate in for a while before we move on to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And then he goes on a little bit about the difference between tongues and prophecy. Tongues builds you up. Prophecy builds up the church. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. The one who prophesies builds up the church. The one who prophesies, prophesies so that the church may be built up. When a passage keeps repeating something, that's pretty key. It's a hint that it wants us to understand prophecy equals building. Okay, that, that's hopefully clear. And then we go on, we're gonna skip all the way down to verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others, the community, those who are listening, weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Okay, I want to say four brief thoughts today. Pursue love, turn up desire, build way. That's it. If we're talking about what the prophetic looks like in the local church, that's it. Those four brief thoughts summarize everything about walking in the prophetic as the people of God. Let's talk about pursuing love, or maybe a better way to say it, encountering love. 1 Corinthians 13 is the springboard for eagerly desiring the prophetic. It goes back to what I was saying about what you echo within family culture. Uh, I find in churches there are often two extremes as we approach the prophetic. Assuming that we theoretically agree that prophecy is okay for the church today, so I'm gonna assume that. Assuming that, you still encounter often a couple of extremes when it comes to approaching the prophetic. You can get to the extreme, which is, this is a theoretical thing. Yes, I agree that prophecy can happen, but uh, you know it's one of those things, it's a technicality. It can happen, it's just not going to happen. I'm not anticipating it, I'm not going to chase after it. If God wants me, he knows where to find me. That kind of approach. We'll talk about that in a second. There's another approach where We're so eagerly desiring the gifts, which is a good thing, it's biblical, but we kind of become very, Focus, tunnel vision around the gifts and we ignore lots of other scriptures including pursue love and we can become people who start creating a sense or a tone of what God is like in the absence of having encountered him and honestly I'm not sure which is worse, the people who don't really have any interest in the prophetic or the people who do have an interest in the prophetic but have not encountered him so are echoing him all wrong proximity leads to echoing behavior. When we encounter his love, we are rightly postured in order to relay the information that is on his heart because tone means everything. If someone, have you ever had this when you receive a text or maybe an email, you can't tell if the person was angry or not. You're like, oh man, I I wish I could just hear your voice because are you trying to encourage me or tell me off? (laughs) And then you're trying to figure out how to respond, but obviously your response needs to be appropriate for what they were saying. And sometimes as Christians, if we've not had time encountering his affection for us. If we've not had revelation of a God who is love and therefore personifies 1 Corinthians 13 for us, if we've not had that, then we can hear words that he might be saying but translate them through our lens of who we think he is and when we do that, it comes out all wrong and we represent him incorrectly to a lost and broken world. We have to encounter love. We have to spend time in close proximity to who he is in order to be able to correctly echo him. You know, one of my favorite passages in scripture is Matthew 25, where Jesus tells the parable of the talents and he tells the story of this master who gives his servants talents five, two, and one, and he, the master goes off on a journey, and he uh, leaves these talents in the hands of his servants, and the one with five and the one with two, they invest the talents, and they see it multiply. But the one with one goes and buries the talent. And when the master returns and he asks an account of what they did with the talents, he, he has so much favor and reward for the one with five and two because they come to him with what they were given and they show how they multiplied it. And he's incredibly generous with them and he blesses them with even more than they were given. And then the one with one talent comes to him and says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, and I was afraid, so I hid my talent. Now, nothing in that story reveals the master as a hard man who reaps where he did not sow. In fact, the opposite is true. He's a generous master who gives what is his to bless his servants. What's the point of that parable? I knew you to be. What you know God to be will determine everything you do from that point onwards. That's why we can't rush into spiritual gifts as something isolated, as something clinical or sterile that we just get to exercise out here devoid of relationship with him. It doesn't work and the reason is you won't know who he is and how he thinks and how he feels and everything you sense will be filtered through your understanding of who he is. You better make sure that that understanding is accurate. That's why we hear prophetic words of judgment and gloom, of anger and punishment. I wonder what they know God to be. Love is patient, it's kind, it hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. It is not irritable or rude. What do you know him to be? Sometimes people say to me, I don't think God wants to speak to me the way he speaks to other people. My question is what do you know him to be? Because that thought reveals something about what we feel like he's like as a dad. You know, the primary revelation in scripture of who God is, is God as father. We're told in the book of Hebrews that long ago God revealed himself through the prophets, but in these days he has revealed himself through his son. Why the son is revealing a father? What kind of father do you think he is? This is why I'm confident. Before we get into scripture, just that one thought alone gives me confidence that he wants everyone to prophesy, why? Because the simplest reality of prophecy is hearing what God is saying. And if he's a father and not an abusive one, therefore we must believe that he actually wants to speak to his children. If you want confidence to prophesy, let that be it. Encounter his love. Because if he is your loving father, there is no way, unless he's demonic, that he will not want to speak to you, that he will not want you to hear his heart, that he will not want you to hear his thoughts. What kind of father is like that? Not a good one. If my children came to me and said, mom, can you tell me something? And I just turn around. If my son said, hey, mom, will you speak to me? And I I went over and spoke to his sister and said, because she's the chosen one. (laughs) Oh, we laugh, but that's what we think he's like. As if he reserves his words for the special few. Me, no, not you. This one over here. He's a father. What do you know him to be? I wanna invite all of us as we seek to experience the gifts of the spirit in our midst, we have to stand on this foundation first and foremost. 99% of your gift is determined in these two words, pursue love. Because until you have a fresh revelation of his heart for you, you won't know what to do with that talent. You see, an incorrect understanding of him means fear and paralysis take the place of risk-taking and joyful multiplication. I was afraid, so I hid it. No matter how many gifts the Holy Spirit deposits in your life, unless you know him as a kind father, you will always be too afraid to take the risk with your gift. He's a good father. He's inviting us to encounter his love. The accuracy and the depth of your gift will not be determined by the level of the gift. We talk about this sometimes. Oh, that person is a high level gift. (laughs) Be determined by your connection to his heart. I can hear all the things in the spirit realm, but if I've not understood the tone of his voice, I will never be accurate in how I speak on his behalf. What do you know him to be? Encounter love. The second thing, turn up desire. This phrase here, e- earnestly desire or eagerly desire, it's, a, it's actually a little bit complicated to translate because it has the connotation of water liquid boiling over. It's a powerful word, it's a dynamic word. It's a word that indicates movement and excitement. It's zeal and in the negative, jealousy. It's something that means that you're in pursuit of something to catch it. It's, It's not a passive word. Eagerly desire the gifts especially that you may prophesy. Now, if we understand him to be a good father, we'll understand that he doesn't invite us to especially desire the gift of prophecy if he has no intention of giving us the gift of prophecy. So we'll understand this very thing reveals to us his intention for everybody. He's not a tease. He's not mean. He's not a dad who wraps up a gift and comes downstairs with a gift to his children and they say, oh, can I have it? And he says, oh no, this isn't for any of you. Eagerly desire means, hey, I'm eager eager to give you this gift. But he's inviting us into boiling over with anticipation and excitement and faith to pursue that gift. Have you ever seen someone who's apathetic in pursuit? Sometimes you like, uh, I love shows that are kind of um, police crime drama things. And sometimes you have this like <laughs> policeman in the story who's just a bit lazy. Like, whenever they have to chase a baddie, they're like, uh, you guys go ahead. I'll catch up with you later. I feel like sometimes we're like that as the people of God eagerly desire, pursue these gifts. We're like, I'll catch up with the rest of you, keep going. My parents always tell the story of when I was six or seven, I was in a sports day race at school and I really don't have a competitive bone in my body when it comes to sports, I'm just like, Whatever, we're here all to take part. Like, I genuinely believe that when people say, it's the taking part that counts. I'm like, yes, I believe that. I know some of you roll your eyes like, that's pathetic. Well, I was that person who's like, I'm taking part. That's all that counts. I'll get the award that says I tried. And my parents tell the story. I think I was about six, and I was in this race, and as they, whatever, I don't know what they did to six-year-olds, I was like, the gun went off, it wasn't a gun, it was, I don't know, someone said, run. And we all started running, well, we all, I say that because I actually took my time to wave at the crowd. <laughs> and my parents were yelling, run, Katia, run! And I was like, oh, and all these people are cheering. This is so lovely. And I'm just spending my time and my parents were like, oh my gosh, she's never going to make it. And absolutely, I got the sticker that said, I tried that day and I was so proud of it. Some of us are pursuing the spiritual gifts in that way. The Bible talks about running a race as if to win. Some of us are like, hi. How you do? I don't like sweating. So I'm not going to try very hard. Let the other people get there first. We laugh, but we behave in this way where we lean back into a level of apathy or passivity. The comment I made before, perhaps a little flippant, but it is nevertheless true. Oh, God knows where I am, he'll come and find me. A lot of us believe that when it comes to spiritual gifts. As if it's spiritual to abdicate responsibility for desire. It can sound so spiritual, can't it? Oh, I believe in the sovereignty of the Lord. He's the one who wills the gifts. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 12. Absolutely, held in tension with eagerly desire, which is a word of zeal, a word of fervor, a word of pressing in, a word of trying to get that gift that you know is promised. They're held together. Oh, I don't want to get into striving. Striving is only striving if you believe for something more than he is willing to give it. If not, it's passion, it's not striving. Me saying I believe that he wants to give me this gift and I'm gonna posture myself and I'm gonna go to every prophetic conference. Why, because I wanna get that gift and I wanna spend time with those who prophesy and I wanna learn from them. That's not striving, that's called bubbling over with eager desire for the gift. I wanna say this as kindly and humbly as I can. But church leaders, I want to I caution us. We have got so afraid of hype that we are starting to pastor skepticism. We're nurturing it. We're comforting it. We're surrounding it. Oh, your doubt, your doubt is beautiful. Jesus never told someone who was doubting that their doubt was beautiful. He understood it but he transformed them from doubt to belief. We're so scared of hype and what I find funny is some of our churches haven't even smelled hype since 1973. (laughs) We're so alert against hype. I don't love hype either. But when that becomes our stance to protect against this enemy out there called hype and emotionalism. We encourage people to sit back and quiet it down and dial it down. And what we do as unintentionally as it may be, we actually encourage people into passivity and apathy as if quietness is more spiritual than shouting aloud to the Lord, but the Bible instructs us for both. Be silent before the Lord, yes, but also shout out to the Lord, both. We are allowing for this worldly culture of I'm too cool and I'll wait and see and impress me if you will and prove yours. Oh, someone said a prophet's in town. We'll see. We'll be the judge of that. No. Where Jesus is consistently encouraging the all out crazy radical faith that pushes past reasonable boundaries. I'm not saying we don't explain what's going on, but gosh, we're so hypersensitive to something that isn't even happening in 95% of our meetings. (laughs) We're the people on the roadside where the blind man is shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Nobody, nobody listened to this man. This is emotionalism. This isn't what we do. No, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's what it means to boil over with a passion and a desire that will not be satisfied with sitting with my arms crossed in my seat, waiting for him to come and find me. I am gonna go and find him wherever he is. What did you come for today? Gosh, I hope you didn't come for an eloquent sermon. I'm sorry. I know what I came for. Eagerly desire. Build. Prophecy is intended to build. We're going to land in a second. You're all like, she's halfway through her words. This is scary. We're going to land soon, I promise. (laughs) Prophecy is not frivolity. I want to say this, because there's this, like, I don't understand how this has even happened, but like spiritual gifts are for the emotional amongst us in our communities. Oh, that's just a charismatic church thing. We we don't really do that in this church. I don't see the Bible giving us the option. There isn't a New Testament church that's an actual New Testament church that doesn't (laughs) operate in the power of the Spirit. And wherever there is, the apostles go and rectify that mistake. It's a mistake. We don't get to choose, we are not in charge. This is how he operates. And last time I checked, becoming a Christian wasn't inviting him into my life, was me recognizing that I had been killed on the cross and I had been resurrected into his life. He is the one driving the train, you've just jumped onto his agenda, not yours. And the Holy Spirit is the one steering this. We don't get to choose. This isn't frivolity. This isn't for those who aren't very intellectual. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. You're not going to be able to understand the words without the power of the Spirit. This isn't about intelligence. It's about submitting ourselves to God who tells us how things are going to be. He values obedience over complexity every time. Prophecy builds... This is a powerful building material. Some of us are more enamored with buildings that are held up by the scaffolding of our traditions rather than allowing the spiritual gifts to actually build a building with any strength. We don't need cement in this church. We're gonna put it together with sellotape and whatever else. No, this is a building material. You don't despise it. You don't leave it to the few. You understand that prophecy is given so that we will understand the heart of our Father and know the steps to take. It is impossible for you you to know what to do in human wisdom. Check it out. Where did human wisdom lead when Jesus was walking? He consistently opposes it. He consistently offends it. We cannot do church in human wisdom. The kingdom operates with a completely different set of rules, empowered by the spirit. It's a building material and it is essential for our communities to be strong. Okay, let's go to weighing. Then we're gonna land, I'm gonna be about five minutes late. Is that okay? Okay. If you need to stand up, shake your legs, do I, I don't get offended by stuff like that. Weigh. We read in 1 Corinthians 14, this instruction for the community to weigh. Do you know what? That is one of the most releasing words because when we enter into the practice of the prophetic as communities, and it is a practice, my four and my six-year-old, they now know how to talk and walk mostly, but they, when they were first learning, They kept getting it wrong, they kept stumbling. That's okay, that's called process. The same is true for how we operate in spiritual gifts. You've gotta be able to practice it, which means we we have a humility in how we bring words. Thus saith the Lord. Don't do that. (laughs) You're already setting the standard so high, you better be right at that point. I'm just learning to hear the heart of God. I feel like there's someone in this room named Anna. Anna, the Lord wants to encourage you today that you are loved, you are seen, and you are known. You have lived in a difficult stage in this last season, but what God wants to do is to bring fresh life and strength into your bones. That lowers the bar. And the New Testament empowers the community to weigh So many church leaders say to me, what are we gonna do with the abuse of of the prophetic? What you're gonna do is pastor your people to weigh. Then the prophetic won't have room for abuse. Because as much as we'll leave room for people to practice the prophetic, we'll also empower our people to know what God sounds like. So when a prophet comes into town and says, God is gonna set this place on fire with his punishment, you as a community will know that doesn't sound like Jesus. We weigh the word. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, don't quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Do you know how you despise the prophetic? By not bothering to weigh it. But when we weigh it, we're engaging in it. And listen, I just wanna give you a quick indication here. When you weigh a word, it's not asking, does this sound plausible? I guarantee you it won't sound plausible because if it's Jesus, it's going to sound unlikely. <laughs> okay, so that's not how you weigh a word. You weigh a word by saying, does this sound like Jesus? Yeah. Does this sound like he's inviting me to do something that I could not figure out in my own human strength? If you could figure it out on your own, he wouldn't be giving you an introduction into impossible living in the kingdom. The prophetic is there in order to draw you up into the reality of the impossible realm. So don't weigh with plausibility, weigh with the sound of Jesus' voice. (laughs) But then the thing is, the second part of weighing is, now you contend for that word. You obey it, you follow it, you steward it as best you can. Words have different components to them. Someone comes to me and says, Katya, I prophesy that you are gonna be the best preacher the world has ever seen. That would be an awesome word, we'll take it. Thank you, Jesus, that's definitely you. Now, I'm not gonna bother to write a sermon at all because God's gonna do it. That word will never come to pass. Because the prophetic is an invitation into partnering with God. I better start writing some sermons. Ready for the day when God opens the doors. I can't open the doors, but I can steward the word. So many of us have books this thick of the prophetic words that were given us and they're lying all dusty somewhere and we're so disappointed that the words didn't come to pass and I'm asking you, which one of those words have you stewarded with your posture? <laughs> we gotta weigh them. 1 Timothy talks about the battle, the warfare that was waged with the prophetic words over Timothy's life. God's giving you weaponry with your prophetic words. Years ago, when I was given words that seemed so impossible that people would have laughed at me for them, I started taping the words up everywhere in my room, and on a daily basis, I would declare them into being. Why? Because I was trying to partner with what God said. I was trying to bring my yes and amen to what he said. I was trying to show him my willingness with what he said. So what does it look like to be a prophetic church? Encounter love. Turn up desire. Build and weigh.